How many of you know that song? Sinners. Okay, just kidding. Just kidding. It's a, some top 40 song right now. So, hey, uh, the bulletin you got when you walked in is the correct bulletin with the wrong picture on the front. So everything else is correct. And if you want to take out your message notes, we are jumping in a new series today that we're calling Four Days That Changed the World. And sometimes a, a walk has a way of changing things. I was um, part of doing a wedding yesterday, and those doors in the back of our worship center opened, and a bride walked down the aisle to be received by her groom, and just sort of anecdotally, it was a cook marrying a hunter. So that's cool. If that isn't divine um, culinary matrimony, I'm not sure what is, okay? And by the end of it, it was two have become one, right? Some, some walks change everything. In March 21st, 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. and a number of his civil rights workers with him, they left from Selma, the city of Selma, Alabama, in order to march to Montgomery to fight for the right for African Americans to be able to vote. They'd been turned back two times already, but this time they had the backing of President Johnson and he had given his support to the march and instead of having armed guards there to turn them back, they were there to protect the marchers as they embarked on a 54-mile walk. When they got to Montgomery, Dr. King gave one of his most famous speeches that he gave in all of his time, and it was summarized by a phrase, how long, not long. And in that speech, here's what he said. He said, like an idea whose time has come, not even the marching of mighty armies can halt us. We are moving to the land of freedom. And on August 6, 1965, African Americans were given the right to vote in this country. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Some marches change everything. It was March 29th, 33 AD, when Jesus of Nazareth got on the back of a donkey, a colt. To ride into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. But it started the clock ticking on a week that has changed the world that we live in. 
maybe in more ways than we recognize, that week changed everything. The reason that you have Sunday off as part of your weekend is because Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday. Did you know that? That it used to be that followers of Christ, until um, Christianity was the religion in the Roman Empire, would go to church before work, early in the morning, before the sun came up, to worship, and then go to work, because Sunday was just like any other day of the week. This changed everything. We now have a weekend. Praise the Lord. But it changed more than that. And over the next few messages and our times together on Sunday, we're going to wrestle with this week, this this really this four days, this 96 hours that changed the world. My hope is that over the next week, uh, the Spirit of God invites you into this story to know it better, but maybe more than knowing it better, we would be known that we might just not be able to regurgitate it and, and the facts of what happened. And, and we're going to wrestle with that. We're going to wrestle with questions like, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? Who killed Jesus? Who did Jesus, quote unquote, pay off for the debt of sin? Where, what was all that about? So really easy questions. So come back, okay? But we're going to wrestle with a new type of influence, an influence of love. We're going to talk about he descended to the dead or he descended to hell or what does that mean? We're going to talk about that. And on Easter morning, we are going to celebrate the fact that what Jesus does on Easter morning changes definitively the world that we live in. Amen. And it's a march that changes everything. And I was struck as I was preparing in reading through some of the gospel accounts that if you take the the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start to read them, you're going to notice something really, really interesting. Is that this one week, this holy week that we call it, beginning with the triumphal entry and culminating with resurrection from the dead, if Jesus lived 33 years, which is roughly what most scholars and most people would say that he lived, that means that this is one 1,716th of his life, which, if you're doing the math, is 0. Oh, that's the wrong slide. So if you need to move this decimal over, it's 0.06% of Jesus's life. That's a small percentage. Yes? But if you read through the Gospels, you'll start to recognize that they seem to put an awful lot of emphasis on this one week. Because it's 0.06% of Jesus' life, but it's 33% of the Gospels. From the time of the triumphal entry forward, I'm not even including times where Jesus definitively says, I'm pointing my face towards Jerusalem. Or he starts to talk about the cross. I'm just start, start the timer when he walks into the gates of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. 33% of our Gospel narrative is this one week. That's amazing. Yes, you don't seem as excited about that as I am. That's okay. I have enough for all of us. That's unbelievable. So you might be asking the question, why is it so important? I'm glad you asked that. Open your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament, John chapter 12. And Jesus is going to begin to tell us why this week is so important, why this week is going to change the world. And so what we want to do is listen to the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus today and sort of let these 96 hours just press in on us a little bit. Because here's the way he says it, John chapter 12, starting in verse 27, and then we're going to jump back to the beginning of this story to see it for its whole. But listen to why Jesus says it's so important. He says, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Now, just a quick timeout. Um, I love that the evangelists, that the gospel writers are going to include for us these moments of Jesus's humanity. He's looking at what he's walking into, and like you or I, he says, I am what? Troubled. Yeah, like my soul's in turmoil here. What shall I say? And he has this rhetorical, Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I should say? Like, get me out of here? If there's an eject button, let's hit it? No, no, he says. It's for this very reason that I came to this hour. The reason I'm clothed in humanity, the reason I'm walking the face of the earth, the reason that the incarnation has happened is for this moment. Everything has been coming and leading up to this, like little streams that eventually emerge into a river. Jesus goes, this is what it's all about. And as Jesus starts to walk towards his cross, Jesus' turn towards the cross turns the world upside down. Jesus' turn towards the cross turns the world upside down. And today we're going to look at just 16 verses in the Gospel of John where Jesus lays out for us a sort of a methodology of why we can say this with confidence. Why did these 96 hours, why did these four days, why did this, you want to extend it, why did this week change it all? He goes, well, let me tell you. Let's start back in verse 20, because that's where this story begins. Jesus has turned toward the cross and his resurrection. So we're seeing that as an entire event turns the world upside down. Verse 20. It won't be on the screen. It's a lengthy section. We'll read 10 verses here. So please follow along in your uh, Bible or on your phone. You can swipe there however you want to follow. But here's what the scriptures read. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. That's the festival of Passover in Jerusalem. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee. Now, I think they chose Philip because Philip was also a Greek. So they went up to him and said, hey, you've got an in with Jesus. With a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, underline that star that in your Bible. It's going to be important. We'll come back to it in a few moments. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. 
While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. Time out. This only happens three times in the Gospels. So it's sort of important. Okay. And often we just read right over things in the Bible without trying to put ourselves in the picture of people who are standing there going, what in the world is going on? And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this is hilarious, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. He's like, that was for you, not me. This is not about, that was all you. I know what my father's voice sounds like. We talk all the time. That was for you. That's on you, right? What is going on? They begin by saying, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you'll see me all right. And he goes into this almost riddle-laden teaching about his cross. But notice what he wants to address first. If you see in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. He's going, okay, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see the Son of Man glorified. Father, glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it, talking about his life, and he says, and I will glorify it again. Most people who study the scriptures say that Jesus is unequivocally declaring that the cross is the picture of God's glory, which is astounding. See, this word glory has a lot of history to it. If you were to be a, a good Jewish person, your immediate thought would be going to the book of Exodus, where Moses, the, arguably one of the best leaders that the nation of Israel had ever seen, asked to see God's glory. Exodus 33, you can go read it this week. God, let me see your glory. And God says, I'd love to show you my glory, but it would kill you. We got a little problem here. So how about you just look at my backside after I pass by? And Moses is like, great. Or you would, your mind as a good Jewish person would be drawn to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. And the skies proclaim the works of his hands. This word glory could literally be translated weightiness. So if you took a pebble and threw it into a lake, you'd get to see its glory by how much water it displaced. If you took a boulder and threw it into a lake, you'd get to see its glory by how much water it displaced. It, it's a way of talking about majesty. It's a way of talking about beauty and so the psalm says if you go out in the evening and you look up at the sky and you try to count the stars, it's a little bit like taking in God's majesty, his glory, his beauty. But when Jesus says that 
the Son of Man will be glorified, talking about the cross, it changes everything. It changes the entire view of what we think of when we think about God, but also about what we think about when we think about glory. What Jesus is saying, what the triune God is saying is, if you want to see what I'm like in all of my glory, in all of my weightiness, in all of my splendor, and in all of my beauty, then you cannot look past Golgotha. You cannot look past Calvary. That that's where you see ultimately and definitively what I'm like. Every other picture of God's glory is subsidiary to the cross. And we go, well, that doesn't make any sense. That God would show his beauty, his majesty, his power through a cross? Yeah, I know. Richard Dawkins, a prominent atheist, he, he echoes our lament about that, our questions. He says, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on a cross as worthy of grandeur. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible. To that I say, to Richard Dawkins, what's more incomprehensible than the cross? I think he nailed it, unknowingly to him. This is the upside-down world that Jesus invites us into. Friends, that Jesus is the exact radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And the glory of God is best displayed, according to the gospel of John, on the cross. That's where you see him most fully. If you read through the New Testament, the New Testament is going to be really clear. The cross is the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. So why does this week change the world? Well, it exposes the reality that God's glory is sacrificial love. So glory is this word about weightiness, but the word glorify is a little bit different. It's, it's the, the request. When Jesus says glorify your name, what he's saying is put your glory on display. Like, let everybody see it. L literally in the Greek, it means to recognize the real substance of something. Where you go, oh, so, so that's what that's like. That's what that tastes like. That's what that means. Anybody else um, like the show Fixer Upper on HGTV, okay? Uh, so they, the Chip and Joanna Gaines, they go into these houses that look like yours and mine, and then they turn them into houses that don't look like yours and mine. It's, that's the premise of the show in a nutshell. And they do all sorts of remodeling, and they make it awesome, and there's shiplap everywhere, and everybody's like, yeah. But there's this moment at the end of the show where they have this big banner in front of their house, and there's a picture on the banner of what the house used to look like. And they have this big, they call it the big reveal. Are you ready to see your fixer-upper, right? And they pull back the curtain, and the couple gets to see their new house. You know what they're doing? They're glorifying it. They're displaying it. 
They're letting all of its beauty shine forth. So take this picture for a moment. And like, what if the Trinitarian God is looking at the cross going, that's it. That's what we are like. He's echoing what early church creed that would have said, and Paul records it for us in Philippians chapter 2. Here's the way that this creed read. It says this, that Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, that he was, he was God himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Here's what Paul's saying, that the way that Jesus characterizes God, displays God, glorifies God, is not by coming and powerfully suppressing those under him. He could have done that, but he didn't. He actually showed us what God is like by emptying himself. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He doesn't empty himself of God. He empties himself of grasping and displays what God is like. That's good. See, here's the thing. You could, you, if you want to, you can write this down, okay? The cross is not something that God does. The cross reveals who God is. The cross reveals what God is ultimately like. The cross is showing us forgiveness extended to all. Love for enemies put on display. Hope for the hurting held out. And relationship with God ultimately and finally restored. This is what your God is like. See, I know a lot of people who want to quote unquote live for the glory of God. And that's so up in the air that we have no idea what that means. Can we just agree with that? Like, I, I, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Westminster Confession, and in Westminster Confession, it says that the chief end of man is to, anybody know? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. To that I say, praise the Lord, but let's define glorify, and let's define it like the scriptures do. So what if we looked at the chief end of man as the chief end of man is to selflessly love, which allows us to enjoy a God who is love. What if we actually defined what we're talking about and sunk our feet into the ground that we actually walk on and say, well, this is what it actually looked like for Jesus, and this is what it looks like for us. So he's transforming this world. This is what glory looks like. This is what God looks like. Self-giving, sacrificial love for those who are distant and obstinate towards him. That's who God is. That's what God is like. You can say amen if you want to. Like I said, though, I've got enough for all of us today. So listen here where, where this goes next. Okay. So Jesus says, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. 
Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, don't you love, I can imagine Jesus being a great rabbi, being witty, being funny, using props and all the things around him, picking up a stalk of wheat and putting it in between his hands and rubbing it and it falling to the ground. And he's making this point that the rhythms of grace are sown into the soil of creation. Every time you see a seed go into the ground and come out with more life than it went into, you're seeing something that God has wired into his world. That's awesome. Anyone who loves their life, he explains it, will lose it. Anyone who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So what's Jesus saying? I mean, should we read this literally? That Literally, Jesus says that we should hate our lives. Well, he also teaches... That the golden rule is to do other unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you hate your life, literally, and want to harm your own life and your own self, then that command doesn't make a lot of sense. Can we agree on that? Okay, so Jesus is using what we would call hyperbole. He's going to the nth degree to make a point. And he's saying, you've got to surrender your own life. And in doing so, find what it means to actually, truly, genuinely live. That's his point. He is not calling you to be a sadomasochist. He's actually inviting you to be a hedonist. Because he's going, this is what real life looks like. January 7th, um, 2007, the New York Magazine ran an article about a study that they'd done where they were trying to figure out what makes people happy. And they called this article Happiness 101. You can Google it and download it and read it if you want. But here's the gist of what they found. They found that the people who were trying to just live for pleasure, to live for the next high, to live for the next newest thing, were actually some of the most unhappy people they studied. And you know why that that makes sense is because we've all seen it. And here's what they decided. That if that type of pleasure is our ultimate goal, it keeps distancing itself from becoming a reality because you get something and it satisfies temporarily, but then you need just a little bit more in order to make yourself happy the next time. So you need a little bit newer car, you need a little bit nicer, a little bit brighter, a little bit shinier, a little bit bigger, all of that, and we're on this treadmill that just keeps getting pushed up, 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 more, 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 bigger, 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 brighter, 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 and soon we're running so fast that we can't even keep up. And so what the study found, and I quote, is this. That instead of becoming addicted to our own pleasures that continue to keep growing and outgrowing our capacity to feed it, quote, you have to do more and more to be satisfied, they said. But according to this study, the best way to increase happiness is to do acts of selfless kindness, to pour yourself out to those who are in need. Research shows that an unselfish life of service gives a sense of meaning of being useful and valuable, and of having significance. 
And Jesus is like, hey, look up at me. That took you 2,000 years? Like, I was telling you that. I was telling you guys. Like, come on. That's exactly what he's inviting us to, is a life where we lay down hours and find what it means to really, truly live. He says it like this in Mark chapter 8. He says, and then he, Jesus, called the crowd alongside him and his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, in the same way that Jesus uses an illustration about a stalk of wheat and a, wheat, a seed that goes into the ground, he's using a saying from the day. To take up your cross and follow was to say, I'm going to place myself under the authority of the Roman Empire. I'm going to surrender to them. I'm going to submit to them. What they ask of me, I will do. So when people talked about carrying their cross, which they did back in Jesus' day, they were talking about a surrender to the empire. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's inviting them to surrender not to an empire, but to a kingdom. Live in my way. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever wants to lose his life will save it. The cross, taking up our cross, you could picture it like this, is essentially saying back to God, not my will, but yours be done. And so here's what Jesus does. He turns the world on its head. When he turns to Jerusalem, he turns the world upside down because he reveals that death is actually the path to life. And you have to hear me on this, is that Jesus is not calling us to look at the cross and admire the cross. He's asking us to look at the cross and emulate it, to live in the same way. It's not, hey, Jesus, that was great. He's like, wonderful. Well, you do the same. You follow me in this. And look at how he does this. In verse 21, there's these Greeks that come to Jesus. I told you to circle it, and I told you I'd come back to it, and surprisingly, I did. They come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we want to what? We want to see you. And he's like, great, you're going to see me lifted up in all of my glory. But my goal is not just that you see me. That's important, but it doesn't end there. My call is that you follow me. That's my call. But unfortunately, because we live in a world that's twisted and permeated with sin, we've, we've seen this idea of laying down your cross and dying to yourself. Been, it's been taken advantage of. It's been abused. Where, where people in position of power will try to manipulate other people to say, well, you've, just, you've, got to, you've got to die to yourself, which actually really means just live to my desires, not yours. But when Jesus invites us and calls us to die to ourselves, he's calling us to, the, to die to ourselves, not to a death of ourselves. So lean in for a moment. In order to die to ourselves, we've got to first know ourselves. Otherwise, we will just die to what everybody, or we'll die to ourselves and we'll live to what everybody else wants us to do. I love the way that John Calvin puts it in the beginning of his Institutes of Christian Religion. He says this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
And if we don't know ourselves, we will die to ourselves and live to whatever anybody else wants us to do. And let me ask a question. Is that what we see Jesus doing? No, absolutely not. Nobody wanted Jesus to do the things that he did. It's the reason he got crucified. He gave them what they needed. He didn't give them what, he, what they wanted. He lived to the Father's will, not to their will. So death to self looks like something different for every single person in this room. For the people pleaser, death to self looks like becoming a truth teller in some instances. For the fearful, death to self means embracing a life of faith and maybe a little bit of risk. To the stingy, death to self means becoming generous. To those who've been sitting on the sideline, death to self means jumping in, taking that risk, going a little bit extroverted when your natural tendency is introverted, or the opposite, right? To those who've been working their fingers to the bone and feeling like their soul is shriveling, can I just tell you, that's not what God wants for you. That is not death to self. That's not knowing self and death, living to whatever anybody wants you to do. So death to self might mean saying no. Or to some, death to self might be saying, I don't know. I don't know. A surrender of pride. A surrender of, I've got to have my own way. To the adventurous, death to self, might mean planting yourself firmly in the soil of community and staying and being known and going against some of the natural desires and the natural tendencies. Death to self is laying aside everything else and saying, God, what do you... What do you want from me? Not, not, my, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus says something really beautiful happens when we do that. It actually allows us to really, truly, fully live, which is what he's after. You want to hold on to your life? You want to control everything? It's going to kill you. But if you'll let me, you'll find out what it means to really, truly live. So it's something that's hard to diagnose in ourselves. Have I, have I died to myself? Let me ask you a few maybe diagnostic questions that could help, okay? So this will be fun. Maybe not. So how, how often do you get offended? I mean, we live in an easily offended culture and world, don't we? We get offended at everything. It's like a sport sometimes. It's like, I would, I would submit to you that maybe you're not dead in the way Jesus invites you to be if you're often offended, because I think that's probably your pride showing or my pride showing. How often do you find yourself defending yourself? How often do you feel sorry for yourself and wallow in self-pity? I'm right, how, how dare they? I deserve Fill in the blank, whatever it is. How do you respond when you don't get your way? How often do you say, I'm sorry? And, and not, I'm sorry you're a moron and didn't understand what I was really trying to say, which is sometimes how we do it, right? Like, did you say sorry? I guess it's my kids. Yeah, technically. 
I did. I said it. Those words came out of my mouth. I'm sorry. You're a moron, right? No. So what do we, how, what do, we do with this, man? Because like, here's the truth of the matter. You cannot die to self by trying harder. You can't. You can die to yourself by training better. So if you were to train, what does this look like to release little pieces of ourselves? The Christian community for centuries has said, you know what a good practice is? If you want to learn how to do this, it's fasting. It's fasting. We don't, we don't do that often in our culture, but it's a great way to learn how to just in a little bit, a little day, or maybe one meal, die to self. And you go, well, if I did that, I'd be really hungry. Well, that's part of the point, right? Because then we can take that hunger and put it back to a God who says, I'll satisfy you, and we can release some of our desires and take on his. Or maybe, or maybe, you embrace what the um, early fathers would call a posture of simplicity or frugality. So maybe this week, you don't go out to dinner at all. Or maybe this week, you eat only food. You decide, I'm not going to the store. Let's not do this, babe. But for other people, you decide, <laughs> I'm not going to the store this week. We're just going to live off of what we have in our house. And look up at me. Most of us have enough in our house to live off of until Jesus comes back. And you go, well, I wouldn't get to eat anything that I want to eat. That's the point, right? So we're training ourselves to die to some of our desires and to step into the way of Jesus, where he says, death to some of our desires and our pride and us is actually where life is found. And it changes the world, that teaching. Here's how Jesus continues. Oh, I love this quote. Um, this is by Jan Johnson, who write, wrote this great book, An Invitation to a Jesus Life. She says this. This is great. Death, does death to self sound too hard? Well, it's easier than living for self. So there you have it. Okay. Verse 31, and we're going to land the plane here in just a moment. Verse 31. Now is the time, Jesus says, for what? Judgment. Oh, what you guys all wanted to come in here. Now is the time for judgment on this world. And we have this like visceral response to this word judgment because we probably picture somebody with a sign on a street corner or we, we picture something like, um, like fire. Or, I don't know what's in your mind, but we typically have a step back response. And what I would like to present to you today is that the way that Jesus talks about judgment, we should all go, yes. Finally, finally, because listen to what he says. Judgment has two parts to it. The first part. Now, he's talking about judgment. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's great news. He's talking about the Satan. He's talking about sin. He's talking about death. He's talking about evil. And he's presenting sin, death, and evil personified in the Satan with an eviction notice. You're done. That's great news, right? That's great. Okay, yeah, you can clap about that. Yay. <laughs> Wonderful. Paul will recount that in Colossians chapter 2. And I'd encourage you to, to read this whole section. But he finishes in verse 15 by saying that by the cross, he's forgiven us. He's taken our debt. He's canceled it out. And he's disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. 
What's his judgment? His judgment is, this is not the good world that I created. And I'm turning it back to that world. I'm kicking the Satan, the evil one, the one who's behind systems of oppression and racism and manipulation and keeping the low on the bottom and propping the higher up higher and higher and higher. He's like, I'm kicking the evil one out. Literally, in the Greek, it's he's exercising him. He's throwing him out from being over us. And we haven't lived with him over us, so I don't think we get the full weight of all that that means. Suffice to say, it does mean that the devil's defeat doesn't always mean the devil's absence. And so we have this tension of what's going on. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks. But the second thing Jesus says is just as fascinating. He says, and when, all in the context of judgment, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, talking about his cross, I will draw all people to myself. This is judgment. This is awesome. The cross is driving out evil and drawing in people. It's driving out evil, and it's drawing in people. How many people? Well, Jesus says all of them, all of them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he's atoned for the sins of the world, especially those who believe. The sins of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He is drawing all people to him. Does it mean that every path leads to Jesus? No, but it does mean that people on every path are led to Jesus. And that his blood and his death and his life and his resurrection is sufficient for every single person. So what do we have? We have this picture of judgment that's presented as restoration. The word judge literally means to separate. It's God looking at the world that he created, the world that he loves, and it's him saying, these things are right, these things are wrong. You know, people that live in a culture that's been suppressed far more than ours have, they long for the day of judgment. The day of judgment is like going into your chiropractor and saying, I've got this kink in my neck, and he looks at it and he goes, you're, you're, you're right, you do. You're all out of whack, or something technical, okay? <laughs> and he says, okay, now, now here, just relax your head for a second. How many of you get really hard to relax your head in that moment because you know he's about to break you, right? And judgment feels like he's going to break us sometimes. And judgment is God looking at humanity taking our heads, saying, relax, this might hurt a little bit, and, but you're out of joint. You're, you're, out, you're out of place. You're not walking in the way I've created you to walk. So, <laughs> that's better. That's judgment. That's judgment. Sometimes it feels like a fire. If we don't want to be bent, it feels like a fire. If we're willing to surrender, it feels like refinement. 
But either way, it's love. It's love through and through. It just depends on if you want to swim up that stream or get in line with it. But either way, it's love. Driving out evil. And if we aren't ready to let go of our evil, we will be driven out with it. And drawing in people. So now when people ask you if you believe that God's a God of judgment, you can say, absolutely. Isn't that great news? And then you can explain. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus is really clear. Judgment is driving out evil and drawing in people. And here's how Jesus closes and how we'll close too. And the crowd spoke up. You notice how they change the subject? They're like, oh, whoa. We've heard... That the law, that in the law, that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And they're just quoting back the scriptures that say that upon him, the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Thank you, Handel. Yeah, no end. So they're going, gods don't die. They reign. You got this wrong, Jesus. And here's what Jesus ends by saying. Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in darkness does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he finished saying these things, Jesus left, and he hid himself from them. He's going, listen, you've got this opportunity in front of you. You've got this picture of what God is like, sacrificial love. It is his glory. You've got this picture of the path that he's called you to walk, death as a way of abundant life. And you have this picture of God restoring his good creation, driving out evil, drawing in people. He goes, believe it. Believe it. Believe that light. Walk in that light, and in so doing, become children of that light. And I pray that we would. It's just one day in the midst of many, but it's one day that began a domino effect that changed the world. So for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around a table to remind themselves that the sacrificial love of God is his glory on display. To remind themselves of the path that they're also invited to walk, of death to self, and finding what it means to really, truly live. They've talked about a cross that bids us come and die, and find that I might truly live. And as we come to the table this morning, would you remember his cross, not just to admire it, but as you come, will you come with the anticipation of God? How do you want me to live this? Would you come and taste his sacrificial glory? And would you come saying, oh yeah, yeah, that illumination, that light is an invitation that I respond to today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to believe just like Jesus does. Step into the light and become and come to this table if your faith is in him. See, Martin Luther King Jr.'s march 
ended with a right to vote. Praise the Lord. But Jesus' march into Jerusalem ends with eternal life. Let's come and let's celebrate that light and that life together. You can come as you so feel led. There's bread and juice in each tray. There's gluten-free bread in the little green um, cupcake holder. If that's what you'd like, please take that. And you can eat the bread whenever you so feel led. As a picture of your relationship with Jesus, it's personal. But would you save the cup? We'll celebrate the cup together to remind us that we're in community with one another. Come. When I serve